Father, we just thank you for this time together this morning. We just thank you that we're in family together. Oh, Lord, you're so good. You're so good. Father, we just want to, wanna, yeah, that reality. You're so good, Lord. Jesus, we love you. And Father, I just pray that you just anoint these words as I share this morning. That it would just give a new glimpse of who you are and how we relate to you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Psalm 91, verse 2. I will say of the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. You know, Scripture gives us two very powerful pictures of God. He's a refuge and he's a fortress. The refuge, I talked about this last week, is a place to run, to hide, and the place where we go to be safe and to be restored and be refreshed. And a fortress is where you fight your campaign from. It's a, it's a warfare imagery. And sometimes the Lord comes to us as a refuge. Sometimes he comes to us as a fortress. And he's calling us to embrace both those things. And, you know, we have to learn to hold both those aspects of God's character and nature at the same time. Because, you see, how we embrace him and how we embrace the knowledge of him is the key to our transformation. God has already given us everything. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. 1 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. His divine power, it says in 1 Corinthians, Paul says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is that which abides us. That's the power that is available to us. And he's given us everything. It's already ours, pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us. And that knowledge isn't something that we obtain from a head. I mean, part of it is like from studying and from learning. And it's actually the knowledge is, is a, a, a personal. It's, a, it's a, an encountering knowledge. You know, you can know something. I mean, you can know, I can know or a, someone, but I can know the information about them, where they were born, where they grew up, where they, but I never speak to them. But I do know them. I know about them. But then there's that other level where I know them because I have a personal relationship with them. And that's the knowledge. That's the knowledge that he's talking about there, that it comes from that essence of knowing him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So what we behold of him is what, and what we identify in him is what we become. It says, you know, we are transformed from glory to glory. By how? By beholding him. It's actually, it's released. There's a power and there's a blessing in simply beholding him. And we get to hold, behold God as both majesty and also in intimacy. And this morning I'd like to look into this majesty and intimacy through the book of Esther. The book of Esther. You know, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God of very God. Majestic, holy and righteous. And yet at the same time we're called to have this intimate relationship with him. And all the, the, the deep uh, a relational language as children, lovers. The, the, there's this place of intimacy that we're called into, this place of security and, and, and intimacy. So on the one hand, we have them glorious, and on the other hand, we have them intimate. And I think sometimes those two positions can bring confusion to us and can actually become a roadblock to us fully understanding and encountering God. 
You see, we find some people who can worship God high and mighty and lift it up gloriously upon the throne. But they find it a hard place to have a place of intimacy. And um, then there's those who, who, who have this place of intimacy uh, this is, but, uh, and they have a deep relationship in a sense, but they, they, they miss out on worshipping him as God, fully and holy and lifted up. And so what I want to do is look at it through the lens of, of this girl called Esther. Esther was a young, devoted girl, she, and yet she became very significant. She was really a nobody initially, but she became significant and important as a leader of Israel. Her results, uh, her, her life, her, the way she lived, her actions resulted in Israel not being completely annihilated. That there was a man whose intention was to wipe from the face of the earth every Jewish person. And it was through Esther's interceding, through Esther's relationship with the king, that she was able to save this nation. She did it through, and she did it through a life of majesty and intimacy. Or we could say that she lived a life of reverence and romance. And uh, so Esther chapter 1 gives us the context of this. And it begins with, well, this happened during the time of Xerxes. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people, from the least to the greatest. And Xerxes was a great king. He was a powerful man. You can just, from reading that, I mean, you imagine having a shindig for 180 days. And that is some party. <laughs> Come on, I mean, wow. Imagine having to do the dish. Anyhow, one of the greatest, le- you know, he was one of the greatest leaders in the world at this time. And he threw this massive party for everyone. In the city, he wants to share with them his victories, and so he has this great party, and it goes on for days and days, weeks, and then we get down, and then it, and as part of this, on the seventh day after the seventh day of this particular feast, when Xerxes was in high spiritual mind, translate that how you will, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. See, Xerxes had declared all his wealth. He'd shown all the great things he had, all his power. And he says, but there's one more thing I want to show you. To me, it's the most beautiful. The thing that is treasured to me the most, my wife. She's my crowning glory. And so he orders her to come in all her splendor and all her beauty. But clearly Vashti didn't quite see it that way. But Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious. Now, you know, maybe she didn't like being shown off. Maybe she felt that he was treating her like one of his possessions. We don't know. But she wasn't having a bar of it. And she said, nope, not going to come. Now, obviously, in those days, refusing a king wasn't necessarily a great idea. And, uh, you know, you may not actually get to see the next next day. But anyhow, the king was furious. He meets with with his leaders, and he decides to replace her. And so to do it, to, to find this new queen, he put Vashti out, decides to have a new queen, he holds a contest, a competition to find the new queen. And if you read the book of Esther, chapter 2 talks all about it. And finally we get down to verse 17, and it says this, And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. 
He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. So Vashti was out and Esther was in. And Esther became queen and settled into the role. Now, as you read through the book of Esther, you see that things went really well for her. She was able to adapt to this new life as queen. And part of the reason why she had this, this mentor and uh, guardian called Mordecai. Mordecai was a, a leader in the Jewish community, and he held a high office. They, they valued his wisdom, and he was held a high office in the government. And as part of that, he discovers that one of the other officials in the government, a guy called Haman, is scheming against him. He particularly hates Mordecai. He's jealous of Mordecai. And um, as such, he wants to destroy not only Mordecai, but Mordecai's whole race, the Jews. And so he's working out the secret plan that Mordecai discovers about. Mordecai is, is obviously deeply concerned and begins to think how he can do it. And they're talking through it with, with Esther, you see, because now her life's threatened. And the whole, not only the Jewish community, but also her. So she decides to go before the king and make an appeal to save the Jews. And we want to pick that up again here. And what I want you to do is see the difference between her and Queen Vashti, who was invited to display the beauty, the glory, and the splendor she carried as the queen, but wouldn't come. And yet here's Esther, who approaches the king with his majesty. Esther chapter 4. Then Esther sent his reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, and even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So the first thing here is she, we see that, she's, that her approach is that she's going to go before the king, and she's going to go in reverence and awe of the king. And even though she was a queen, you see, she, and was the most intimate person with the, with the, in the kingdom of Xerxes, she still treated this man as a king. She came with respect and awe. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. So remember, she's been fasting. The whole of the nation of Israel have been fasting. All those that are, are there have been praying about this, and she comes into this room. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out the gold scepter that was in his hand. So here he is, the picture is he's sitting on the throne. Now when a king sits on a throne like that, he's, not just, he's now sitting in the place of government, of judgment, of law, and where he rules from. And he sits there and he looks out on the court. And normally no one comes before him unless he calls him. But he sees Esther and she's standing there. And she begins to approach him without being asked. She's arrayed in all her beauty. She's come off a three-day fast. And she's seeking, and she has the favor of the Lord. She's seeking, and now she's seeking the influence and authority from courting the Lord. She's, she's got the Lord, the, sorry, she's got the Lord's presence, and now she's wanting to get hold of the Xerxes. And she comes before Xerxes, not just as his bride but she comes as a subject of the king. So the king extends his golden scepter towards her, which means that she, he welcomes her. She can approach him without dying. He sees her standing there and he's saying, approach. And so Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And then the king said, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it will be given to you. 
That's a pretty big thing. You see, she came with respect and awe. She came with humility. I mean, she had this relationship with him, but she understood what she was dealing with now required the fact that she held everything in majesty. And this resulted in great favor. It pleased the king, replies Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to our banquet. I've prepared for him. And so we get this big banquet in verse 6, and there's, uh, here's this wisdom that Esther's showing. She doesn't jump straight in and say, this is what I want, I want, rah, rah, rah. She developed the story with the king. So she kept constantly kind of touching and connecting with the king and leading him along, giving him, so it was becoming more and more favorable. And as they were drinking wine, it says, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even half the kingdom will be granted. I mean, she, she's had so much here. Esther replied, my my petition and my quest is this. If the king regards me a favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet and I will prepare for them and I will answer the king's question. See, she understands that she needs power and authority. She needs something to be done great here. So she doesn't come to him as a bride, but she comes to him and dresses him as a king. She comes to him. Notice the respect and honor that she had for him. Even though she could have come in this place of intimacy, she still came with respect and honor and awe. And we won't finish the rest of the story, but it plays out well for Esther and the Jewish people. Haman's exposed to the evil that he is, and he's ultimately hung on the very gallows that he had built to kill Mordecai. And the defeat of the enemy of, and the victory of God's people all came down to how Esther handled everything. Her humility and willingness to not only use her position of intimacy, but also to recognize the greatest of the king and walk in that awareness. I mean, you compare that with, with Vishti, as I said. She, she had a place of intimacy, but because of that, she disregarded the king's desires and requests and used her intimacy for her own pleasure. And, and what I'm wanting to say is I think we need to see this as a caution because I think that sometimes the Vashti spirit has invaded the church. It's invaded the church. Let me take you back in history a little bit. Back in the 80s, there was a revelation of the majesty of God. And the many songs that we sang were all about the, the majesty of God. I mean, Jack Hayford's song was called Majesty, wonderful song. And it was about approaching God with reverence and awe. And there was this awesome sense of God, and it was great. But we had something missing. It was like God was so far because we were honoring him so greatly. He was removed almost in a sense from us. And in the 80s, we, we had another outpouring of the Holy Spirit during a time of refreshing and renewal. And, and something wonderful began to happen. The, uh, you know, I mean, that revival renewal was called the Father's Heart Renewal. And we began to, to, in a sense, began to truly understand what it meant to be the bride of Christ and, and that place of intimacy. And the worship songs that were written were deeply intimate and personal. And they laid a, a wonderful level of intimacy, which was so powerful. But see, here's a challenge to me. And it's like when we look at intimacy, Vashti, she was a queen and she knew her husband was king. But because she was so familiar with him as a bride, in this place of intimacy, she no longer respected him as king. And I think that that's sometimes what's happened in the church. You know, you know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Remember Jesus, when he was in, the, in his hometown, could do very few miracles. Why? Because they were so familiar with him. 
they couldn't receive him as Messiah. They couldn't receive him as a, as a, a minister of God. Why? Because they knew him as a kid from down the street who, who was a carpenter's kid. And you see, we as the people of God can lose power and we can lose authority at times because sometimes we forget that Jesus is not only the lover of our souls, but he's our king. He's our king. And we can lose some of the very important things if we, uh, if we only see him as that. But equally, we can also lose important things if we only see him as the king because then we don't come to him in that place of intimacy as, as the bride of Christ. And Scripture talks about the, both these aspects, majesty and intimacy. You know, and, and how personal are we with God? How intimate can we truly be with God? But then equally, how do we approach him as king, as our majestic Lord and Savior? The first Chronicles is such a good picture of the king. Sing to the Lord. Oh, man, I love this. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is feared above all gods. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in all the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. You see, when we get closer to God, it should increase our sense of awe and wonder, not decrease it. Not decrease it. We need to continue to ascribe to the Lord the glory and majesty that he is worthy of. Majesty and splendor before him. There is no God like him in all the earth, in all the universe, in all the heavens. Yes, he is our beloved. Yes, he is our Lord. Yes, he is our friend. Yes, he is our, uh, all those things. But he's also God Almighty. He's also God Almighty. Ecclesiastes 5.1 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near and listen rather than offer the sacrifice of pray of fools do not, who do not know that they have done wrong. In other words, some people come and don't think of who they're approaching and they become so familiar with who they're approaching. They forget that, wait a minute, this is the king of the universe. I'm approaching the Lord of hosts. So it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to him, listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they're doing wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on the earth, so let your words be few. Now, I mean, this can be taken the wrong way as well. But the thing is, you know, so often we come and we, we, we almost run in. Here's my shopping list, God. Come on, I want you to do this, this, and this. this. You've promised me that. You know, I'm, so, I'm your child. You're, come on, hurry up. I'm waiting. Come on. You know, where are you? And we miss the understanding of encountering God as King of kings, Lord of lords. We become so familiar, so comfortable, we forget who we're speaking to. Now think of the Lord's prayer for a minute. The disciples come to Jesus and say, listen, Jesus, we've been watching you. And man, you can pray a storm up. 
how, how do you pray? Teach us to pray like that. And what does he begin with? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father, there's the intimacy. Hallowed be your name, there's the majesty. You see, we need to grab hold of both. We need to begin to approach with all the intimacy that comes from him being the lover of our soul. None, nothing should block us from that. There's no shame. There's no sin. There's, we have full forgiveness. There's no disappointment in God. He welcomes you. He says, come, come, come. Come to me. Come as my son. Come as my daughter. He welcomes you into his presence. But don't forget the presence you're going into as the king of the universe. I mean, we saw it this, yesterday with King Charles III. He talked about the wonderful things that the queen had done and how marvelous. And then he said, and my mummy, and my mummy did this. Intimacy and majesty. Intimacy and majesty. The New Living Translation puts it, may your name be kept holy. All I'm saying is we need to learn to start with awe. Start with the very words that came out of the 24 elders' mouths. The four living creatures who dwell before the throne of God in all eternity. They behold him all the time. How do they respond? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, is to come. In fact, let me give you some homework. For the next week or month or whatever, every day I'd encourage you to, to say the words of Revelation 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. I guarantee you that if you begin each day by reading those verses, there'll be a change. There'll be a new sense of awe and wonder that will dwell up, grow up in your heart. You'll find yourself actually entering in a new place of, of worship, but not only a worship of majesty, but also intimacy. Also intimacy. Because both of them really do go hand in hand. In fact, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 18 says, It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God will walk in both of them. See, the kingdom of God can only be experienced through mystery. But we, we, and we get to live in attention. It's a kingdom, in the kingdom, that's the way it is. You can't get to the kingdom by your mind. It's a kingdom of paradox. The first shall be last, Jesus tells us, and the last shall be first. You want to find your life? Then lose it. It's constantly that paradox all the time. And it's not just swinging from one truth to another. It's holding these two truths in tension at the same time to learn to embrace the two extremes, these two aspects of God. Because, see, he's bigger. He's gooder. The, the good news is gooder than what we think it is. The greatness of God, no one can favor. It's unsearchable. No one can reach its end. But it's all available to us intimately every single moment of every single day. When we, we see this paradox with, with Christ on the cross. I mean, on the, on the cross, the world sees a, a man broken and beaten and whipped and shamed, dying. Hideous death, the most hideous death possible. For all intents purposes, a failure. And yet from the perspective of heaven, at that moment, he has been crowned the king of glory. 
the king of the world. The picture of the cross is that very paradox. You see, to enter the kingdom, we live in that. We need to understand this. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's both together at the same time. It's not one extreme or the other. You know, we've, we've been taught by society that, that it's acceptable to live in the middle ground. That we live in the middle ground. Not too much of this, not too much of that. We don't get excessive. We want to do but that's not in the kingdom. The kingdom is living on the edges of life. The good fruit grows on the branches. And that's where the kingdom is found too. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but it's embracing both extremes. You see, intimacy is the source of our love and presence. Majesty is the source of our power and authority. In other words, in the intimacy is where we behold the presence of God and we are showered with the love of God, where we're empowered through love, casting out fear and giving us courage, giving us identity. But it's from his role as the king of the universe that we have authority over every sickness and disease. It's from his role as king of the universe that you find your power and authority. You see, because love without power is one of the cruelest things in the universe. A few years ago, there was a movie called John and John Q, starred Denzel Washington. And it was about this ordinary father whose son collapses. Young boy, I think it's probably five or six from memory. It turns out his heart's enlarged and the insurance company won't cover the surgery. And this father so loves his son, he so wants to heal his son, but he's powerless to do it. He had no finances, nothing to do it. And in the movie, he takes these drastic issues where he actually takes the, the part of the hospital hostage and a surgeon to operate on his son. So it's a powerful, powerful movie. See, that kind of desperation is what it feels like when you have love without power. But another great cruelty is where we have ex- ex- human, in a human existence is where we have p- uh, power without love. Rulers and dictators and business owners where they have the power and they drive people, church leaders, unfortunately, too often, who have power without love for their people, do the greatest harm. So it's not an issue of either power or love. It's both. I think it's one of the saddest things I hear in the churches when people talk maybe about the Holy Spirit, and they, you know, someone that will say, oh, you know, you guys are into the gifts of the Spirit, but we're into the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, it's all the Holy Spirit. It's both. We embrace both. I mean, read 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. 12 talks about what? The gifts. 13 talks about love. 14 talks about back to the gifts. Why? Because it's a Holy Spirit sandwich. You know? It's a Holy Spirit sandwich. It's like, you know, the sandwich, you know, you've got the bread on either side and, and the meat in the middle. You had the bread, you just have bread. If you had meat, well, that's pretty good. But you need probably bread as well to, to go there, you know? And, and that's what it's like. We need both. To have a successful sandwich, you need both the filling and that which surrounds it. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 12 says, And now these things three remain. Uh, sorry, 13. Now these things remain faith, hope, and love. By the greatest of these is love. Then the very next verse says, Follow the ways of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So he says, follow love, make love the center, but don't ever forsake the gifts. See, it's not an either or. It's embracing the presence, the love, and manifesting the power. They're not two different things. 
I've actually had people say to us, oh, of course, your church is called the Supernatural Healing, but we get to do good deeds, usually with a, and we're superior, but that's kind of implied. But, you know, it's not one or the other. And we have to stop categorizing the body of Christ. I mean, Jesus never split the disciples up. Okay, John, you're the love guy. You just do that. Peter, you're the power guy. You do that. He said to all the disciples, go, go and spread the kingdom. See, normal Christianity is love expressed through power. It's both. Intimacy is the source of love and presence. Majesty is the source of our power and authority. Another way of putting it could be this. Intimacy is the source of our freedom and creativity. And majesty has the inspiration for service and assignment. One of the biggest dangers in the church right now is to become so self-absorbed. You know, we've been empowering people. We talk about dream. Everybody has a destiny. and We're called to walk in our destiny. And, and all this, you know, Psalm 37.4, he will give you the delight of your hearts. And it's wonderful. And so we're called to that. But unfortunately, I think what's happened in the church is we've begun to focus on me. You know, mine is the kingdom. Oh, sorry, thine is the kingdom. Freudian slip. And we've tended to make everything about us. And I think it's one of the most dangerous things in the church today. A sense of entitlement has grown in the church. And it becomes about everything about me getting closer to Jesus so I can live my destiny. Strike one for intimacy and take one off for majesty. It doesn't work like that. First John says, life, love without service is not love at all. We need to understand. We need to understand that there are seasons of permission and there are seasons of assignment, but we walk in both. And we need to be aware of what we're called to be doing. Jesus is calling us into a place. You know, see, intimacy without majesty can bring familiarity. And it can be characterized by dullness and, a, and, and really a, a lack of government, a lack of discipline. I'll just do what you know, I feel like. And, and sometimes no sense of assignment. We lose that sense of awe and wonder and astonishment at who God is and we drift into a place of everything being about me. And in and, and many ways it actually results in an unbelief. Galatians 5.13 says, For we're all called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. You know, there can also, of course, be the opposite of that, and there can be service without love, where we do it, and that's really the older brother spirit. I'm doing the law. Get out of my way, you know. None of this intimacy stuff. Majesty without intimacy results in dead religion. It results in a loss of spiritual sensitivity and it makes slaves, not lovers. And one of the symptoms of that is a lack of joy in our life and our serving. We're serving, but we have no joys because we've, we, we've mastered the, the understanding of, joy, of majesty, but we've lost the place of intimacy. We're called, really, it all comes down to intimacy and majesty. It's reverence and romance. It's reverence and romance. That's what the Christian life is all about. We're called to the benefits of both. We're called to the benefits of intimacy, and we're called to the benefits of majesty. And both of them release love in our life. Your lover is your king. 
And there's an invitation for every one of us to embrace majesty and intimacy. Why don't we just take a moment right now? Let's relax. Just maybe even just close your eyes for a minute. I just want you to become aware of his presence. So why don't you do that? Just close your eyes. Lord, we just thank you today for, for the wonder of who you are. Lord, we thank you for our rejoicing and for our refreshing. Lord, we, we get to do both. Lord, we want to learn not to live on one side or the other. Lord, we want to live in a place, a stretched place, an expanded place, an upgraded place where, where my lover is my king. My king is my closest friend. And Father, I pray right now that you would just empower us as a people to embrace this place of, of paradox, really. Lord, I pray for a revelation of intimacy. I pray for a place of majesty. Lord, that we would embrace, that we would have the grace to embrace what you're doing right now. Lord, I pray that you'd expand our focus. That, Lord, we'd be able to worship you in a place of, of fullness and completeness. Even in a place of intimacy where we can meet you intimately, but with majesty in our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord God Almighty, high and lifted up, King of kings, Lord of lords, none like you in the universe. But Lord, we also thank you, you're our Saviour, the intimate lover of our soul, knowing us better than we even know ourselves, and that you're committed to our care and our concern. And Father, I pray that we would live a life a life of deep awareness of how great you are and what you've released in our souls. Right now, Father, I just pray, just release a fresh impartation of the Spirit right now. Right now, Lord, and the Holy Ghost, right now, right across this house. Freshness, Lord, just a fresh touch of the Spirit right now. Mm, yes, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Father, may we come to places of intimacy, but not with familiarity. Lord, may we come to places of awe and wonder at your glory, but also knowing that you are completely committed to us as our King. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, that we would live in a place of, of romance, of intimacy and of love. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.